Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 31 of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in making the world a better place through business, Raj Shasodia. Hi, Raj. Hey, Timothy. Uh, good to see you back in London after our sojourn in uh, Costa Rica. That was fun. That was. It's uh, wonderful to be back. <laughs> Only partly true. Um, this week, we're going to have an interesting conversation about happiness and conscious marketing. Raj, you want to introduce the other Raj we're going to have today? Yeah, so this is part of our ongoing series of marketing professors in search of deeper meaning and purpose in their life. Uh, it seems I'm not alone. There's a number of us um, who have ventured starting from, we came into marketing for various reasons, and then we have uh, branched into other areas. And Raj Raghunathan is, uh, is one of them, a professor at uh, UT Austin, a very well-known scholar, uh, got his PhD at uh, NYU. Uh, and a number of years ago, took a course that I had already taken on creativity and personal mastery, taught by another former marketing professor, you know, who was at Columbia, Sri Kumar Rao. He, he was there just before I was. And so we kind of have that in common, love to explore that. And Raj has written a wonderful book, uh, which I think many of us can relate to. If you're so smart, why aren't you happy? And uh, it really is a uh, landmark work, I think. It's very, very practical. It's very grounded. There's lots of great exercises in it. It's rooted in the uh, research literature. So it appeals to, uh, you know, the left brain and the right brain. And, and uh, he's also had an enormously successful online course one of the uh, top-rated courses uh, as well. So welcome, Raj. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much, Raj and uh, Timothy. It's my pleasure to be here with you. Mm, great. Well, maybe begin with, um, you know, first of all, it's really funny, right? You're both marketing professors. So Raj does one called Firms of Endearment. And then you do one that says, if you're so smart, why aren't you happy? So you're, you both play off these common little phrases we have. But maybe you start, Raj, with telling us a little bit about, um, about the book. What, what was the journey that brought you to the book? Why did you write the book when you wrote it? It's a great question. Uh, you don't normally associate the topic of happiness with uh, business school, let alone marketing, right? And people do uh, do a little bit of a double take when they uh, realize that I teach a course on happiness in the business school. And, and the um, story in short is that I uh, realized uh, on a trip to India in 2006 and 2007 with my MBA students at the Macomb School of Business, I'd taken them there for a course called Global Connections. Mm. The idea behind these courses is to expose them to another culture and so on. Um, I met up with a lot of my batchmates from all those years back. I have an MBA from IIM Calcutta and an undergraduate degree in um, engineering from Bits Pilani. And I met up with a lot of them. And, and these you'll remember, these were pre-really, I mean, Facebook and, you know, social media, WhatsApp days. And so I wasn't even in touch with these guys for like a good 15, 20 years. 
And I realized two things. Okay, one thing is there's very little correlation between academic success and career success, right? I mean, so that's an interesting phenomenon. But the second thing that I noticed is that if anything, there was an even lower correlation between career success and what you might call life success, happiness. So I looked at all these guys and many of them were doing really well in their careers, you know, in conventional terms of success, fame, success, power, money, et cetera, but not necessarily happy. And truth be told, I wasn't in a good place myself emotionally at that time, even though I'd just gotten tenure, I had a good house, nice family, my health was good, my parents were good, everything, you know, so on paper, everything was good. But there was this kind of gaping hole in the middle of me, if you will, you know, about mm. is this what life amounts to, right, kind of a thing. And so I turned around to my students on the very last night on the 2007 trip. I remember as if this happened yesterday, it was in Gorai Beach in north of Mumbai. And we were around a bonfire. We were dancing and everything. And I asked them, what do you guys think if I were to teach a course on happiness? And to a person, every single one of them gave me a resounding, enthusiastic yes. Now, everybody was a couple of beers down, so I had to take it a little bit. Yeah, well, I, I was trying to play with that image of a bunch of MBA students <laughs> dancing around a bonfire on the beach outside Mumbai. And I assumed there was some other liquid that was helping with that event. But I've got that picture in my mind, at which point they did say, happiness is a good idea. <laughs> yeah, they did say it. And I, I, you know, I came back and I put together a two-pager and I gave it to my um, chair and I was going to call it a life of happiness and fulfillment, the course. And he said, look, everything looks good, except the title, that doesn't sound like a business course. You know, mm -hmm. So change it. So I said, what do you think I should call it? And he said, well, you're a creative guy. You'll come up with something creative. As it turned out, it wasn't very creative. I just came up with creativity and leadership. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, Anyway, that was the journey. That was in 2009. You took, happiness, you took the word happiness out of the title completely. Yes. Wow. Right. I completely took it out. I made it sound like a kind of an organizational behavior kind of a course, which got me into other trouble with the management department. You know, they were thinking yeah. that I'm checking on their <laughs> So I managed that a little bit. I, um, I ran into that too. You say, we, you can't teach leadership. That's our job. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but that's the story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you took the uh, creativity and personal mastery course uh, a couple of years later, a few years later. So it was in preparation for that course that I took that course. And I told Sri Kumar Rao that, look, I'm going to teach this course. At least that's my hope. I've been I've given the approval. Is it okay if I sit in on your course to beg, borrow and steal? And bless his heart. He said, yeah, you know, the more the merrier, you know, the more the number of people are doing this, the better it is for the planet. Please do come. So... It was very, very large-hearted of him. So I, I went through that, I think, in the fall of 2007. Firms of Indiaman had just come out a few months earlier, and I had read an article in Business Week called Karma Capitalism. And it referred to a whole bunch of Indian academics in different business schools around the U.S. who were bringing the ancient wisdom of India into their teaching. And Shikumar Rao was, was mentioned as one of them. And then I saw that he got his PhD in marketing at Columbia under John Farley, my advisor as well. <laughs> so I reached out to him and went and spent a day with him in his home in uh, Long Island. And also asked the same thing. I said, I'll come from Boston every Sunday and, uh, you know, attend your course. And, uh, and I did that. So that was kind of the beginning of my journey towards a deeper understanding on the spiritual wisdom. Because I really had no exposure at all until then. You know, so it's uh, it's an interesting thing. So after that, then you started your course the, the year the year following, right? So 2007 is when the MBA trip happened. I sat in on Sri Kumar's course in spring of 2009, 
And then I started teaching in the fall of 2009. And it was a pilot run. I wasn't at all, you know, sure what, uh, what content I should have in it. And I did borrow quite a bit from Sri Kumar Rao at that point. Um, like you, I don't have a lot of exposure to, or didn't at that time to, to spiritual stuff. And even to this day, I'm somewhat uncomfortable uh, talking about it because I don't really feel that I'm in any way really qualified. I haven't read any of the original scripts or for that matter, their translation. So I'm more comfortable uh, with the data and science and research. And so I, I did kind of change it quite a bit. And by the time the book came out, it was entirely different from what Sri Kumar wrote. Uh, not entirely different. I mean, we touch on the same, I guess we reach the same conclusions, but through different paths. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting to me that you begin the book by talking about what doesn't make you happy. So maybe talk about the seven deadly sins of what doesn't make you happy. <laughs> Right. So, you know, again, the seven deadly sins, you know, is that magical number seven? Do we, are we culpable of committing just exactly seven sins? No, right? So it could be five, it could be 10, depending on how you chunk it up. But I chose seven again, because, you know, there's this seven deadly sins, right? And in, in, at least in the Bible or Christianity, uh, Christian tradition. Anyway, so, uh, Timothy, to answer your question, the very first sin is not even prioritizing happiness, right? So, it's a very interesting phenomenon where most people would tell you that uh, if you give them an explicit list of goals, right, making money, being smart, getting married to the best person, you know, etc., how important is um, being happy? They'll rate it as consistently as being one of the top goals, if not the top goal. And yet, if you observe people on their everyday, you know, decision making. Uh, you'll realize that they often sacrifice happiness for the sake of these very things that they said were less important to them, right? And I can walk you through some of those studies if you wish. So that's the first sin, deprioritizing happiness. The second sin is uh, chasing superiority. Um, And it's in the quest for becoming a master of something perhaps, or the quest for extrinsic rewards like money, fame, power, etc., but chasing superiority. The third sin is um, being desperate for love and attention of other people. Uh, The fourth sin is being overly controlling of the external world, that is of outcomes and of other people. And the fifth sin is distrusting people um, Mm. by default, thinking that people are cynical, people are um, untrustworthy and so on. And the sixth sin is uh, the pursuit of, uh, you know, it kind of falls into two categories, but pursuit of uh, goals in 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 a very overly passionate manner or overzealous manner, um, what I call obsessive pursuit, yeah. pursuit of passion, or the kind of opposite of it, which is being indifferent to goals and being kind of, you know, half dead, um, uh, being a vegetable. And the seventh sin is uh, mind addiction, which I think a lot of academics should be very familiar with. So this kind of belief that a better solution to any problem can be found if I only think a little more about it. Mm. Yeah, that mm. leads you to kind of become overly addicted to the mind. So those are in brief the seven sins. So now transition us from the identification of what doesn't make us happy to what does. And um, right. in the book, I mean, you also bring up, and maybe this is premature, but you also have your own little MBA program, so to speak, <laughs> and maybe explain, you know, both that transition from what doesn't make you happy to what does, and then the role of the MBA a la karma capitalism that, uh, that plays out here. Sure. Yeah. So, so I have these seven habits, as they call it, call them, and those are the antidotes to these seven sins. 
And so uh, to uh, the deprioritization of happiness, um, the, the habit would be reprioritization of happiness, right? And recognition that, okay, not just claiming that happiness is very important for me, but actually behaving in a fashion that is consistent with that claim, right? And examining your everyday de decisions to see if, in fact, these decisions are, um, uh, are enhancing your happiness levels as opposed to enhancing other things that are less important than happiness is. And again, I can walk you through some studies on that. And uh, the uh, antidote to chasing superiority is to... Wait, uh, if you could just pause there for a second. Yeah. Uh, that, that's a big one, right? The happiness, how we should be thinking about happiness versus we do. At one level, it could just be chasing hedonic pleasure, right? True. Partying and dancing on the beach near Bombay. Uh, but as Viktor Frankl told us, you know, true happiness, deep happiness comes from living a life of meaning and purpose. That happiness cannot be pursued, it ensues. And I like your framing of uh, prioritizing it rather than pursuing it. I think I, that's a similar idea, right? To Frankl. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Go ahead. And then, but then, you know, I had another perspective that John Mackey uh, gave me a few years ago. And he really uh, was sending a message to my daughter who was going through some struggles at the time. And, um, and in a way, for me as well, and, and the message really was around this idea that we all have a right to be happy. We can choose to be happy and that we have an ethical and moral duty to try and be happy. Because if we don't do that, then we, like, let's say you, you subscribe to the uh, belief that you're only as happy as your least happy child, mm. which I heard and immediately resonated with. If you indeed allow that to be true in any family system, that everybody has to go down to the lowest common denominator because anything uh, different would make you feel guilty or you know, you're, you're oblivious to their suffering. But if you allow that to be true, then nobody can ever lift anybody else up. Right? So this idea of consciously choosing it and, and recognizing it as an act of ingratitude in a way, not to be happy because there's so much that is right and so much that you have to uh, be grateful for that if you simply wallow in what's lacking, then you are not serving anybody, including yourself, right? So is that, is that all in resonance with your... Absolutely. I, in fact, I have a phrase for this. I say that, you know, so one of the things that comes up, not a lot of people raise this uh, issue, but it does come up regularly. Maybe five, 10% of the people raise this. Um, and, and the issue is that, hey, you know, uh, I don't think I deserve to be happy. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think I deserve to be happy. Because, you know, I have all these faults or I've done all these mistakes and, and you know, there are so many people suffering uh, around the world. And, you know, I just happen to be lucky here, uh, born with a silver spoon in my mouth. And so what right do I have to be happy? So I tell them that you may not deserve to be happy, right? But you're obligated to be happy for the sake of others. Why do you say you may not deserve? Why would you put that caveat? I, I don't know. I don't, I don't, you know, it's that... That conclusion people arrive to, and I don't want to question that conclusion. You know, it's difficult for me to prove to you that you deserve to be happy. Um, and they might raise counter arguments that, look, you know, what did I do to deserve this and so on. So I don't want to get, go there. Okay. But I tell them that for the sake of others, because you're worried about others, right? You're saying that I don't deserve to be happy because all these people in, you know, Afghanistan are suffering or uh, slums of Bangladesh are suffering or what have you. So I tell them, okay, fine. Don't feel deserving to be happy. But Remember that your happiness is actually good for the world. You're going to help out other people by being happy. Now, this is where, again, you brought up pleasure versus meaning. And this is where I think it get, can get a little intricate. And not all kinds of happiness are necessarily going to 
be outwardly focused and altruistic. So pride, hubristic pride in particular is very self-centered and it is a positive state. But um, almost every other emotional state like love and gratitude and awe and uh, you know, laughter and so on actually lift other people up. So even if you feel you don't deserve to be happy, I tell them that you're obligated to be happy for the sake. Because if not you, who has everything going for you, who else can be happy? Right? Think about it. I mean, you can't expect other people to lift everyone else up when you have everything going for you. You yourself admitted that you have all these things going for you. So I, I think that that is consistent with John Mackey's statement. Right. And I think emotions are contagious. So negative and positive emotions will... will and I think the Indian tradition has a lot to say about that, right? The idea of ananda, sat ananda, and bliss being our natural state. If we are living in accordance with our dharma, you know, our, our, our innate nature, right? Our... Uh, Swabhav, as they, as they call it. So the, the state of bliss is really what we're supposed to be in. It's an unnatural state not to be in that, right? So my professor from my business school days, and I was there for my 25th MBA reunion, Dr. Shrikant, who ran the SP Jain Institute in Bombay. When I gave him a pre-publication version of Firms of India, and it was about to come out a month later. And I said, I'd love to know what you think about this. Everything else I've written came from the head, and this one also comes from the heart. And the next day, I, when I went to see him, he said, you know, Raj, I was up until 11 reading your book. Normally, I go to bed at 8 because I wake up at 4. And I'm really enjoying it. I said, well, that really means a lot to me. Thank you for that. He said, yeah, but as I read it, I realize it's nothing new. I said, so what do you mean? I mean, to me, it was very different from anything I had ever learned in business school. He said, everything you're writing here was written 4,000 years ago. It's all there in the Gita. You know, and like you, I had never been exposed to the Gita or any of the Vedanta or any of the Indian wisdom traditions. So that was kind of a wake-up call. And that's why I started seeking, you know, from So that. Raj, I have a question for you. When somebody says that, yeah, how do you feel? I frankly feel a little frustrated when, when, when people throw that at me. You know, this has all been said uh, so many years back. I didn't feel frustrated. You know, I, I just felt, wow, I mean, there's this whole undiscovered trove of, uh, you know, treasure of wisdom that I haven't been exposed to yet. And wow, there's so much there for me to learn from, you know. And because I trusted and respected him a lot, he was really my mentor in many ways, you know. So that just opened my eyes. Right. I said, I'm from a tradition that has a lot to offer on these issues. And yet, you know, I think you and I probably, growing up in India, and I think part of it has to do with the relic of colonialism, Right, your gaze is always westward, and you're always, uh, you know, kind of rejecting the old in favor of the modern. And we go to—I went to a series of Catholic convents, and so I didn't get the Indian wisdom at home, and I got a diluted version of guilt-ridden Catholicism at school, <laughs> you know, under the heading of moral science. <laughs> so we were kind of shut out from all wisdom in, in a way. You know, we were kind of that in-between, you know, generation. I think now there's more recognition of that even in India. You know, right connecting back to the uh, to the roots. So yeah, for me, it started a journey. Then I did the Sri Kumar Rao thing. I did uh, Eknath Iswaran. I don't know if you've... The, yes. Uh, Blue Mountain Center, I think. He's got a bunch yeah. of wonderful works and, and many other, and Art of Living, you know, all of those kinds of things. So Raj, it sounds like down in Texas, you're a little frustrated when people say, oh, it's already been there. It's already been invented. And you're sort of sitting there going, well, hmm, not so sure that's true. Yeah, so I, I think that there's different approaches to arrive at conclusions, and mm -hmm. these different approaches speak to different target segments. You know, some people are more faith-based, and I know nothing wrong with that, and you arrive at these conclusions because that's what the Gita says, and you completely trust it and believe it. 
other people are a little more skeptical and they want to see data and they want to see proof right and they arrive at it in that way uh, still other people might have different approaches and there is merit to all these approaches and the subtle differences between them that mm-hmm. actually are not so subtle anymore and they're very important differences when you kind of dig deeper and i like a response where people say that wow this is great and it's consistent with a lot of the what the gita says but you've taken a completely different approach to it and mm. there's beauty in that approach and i appreciate that and this idea that it's all been done you know has this flavor of you know been there done that there's nothing new you know mm. let's move on yeah and i get a little frustrated with that honestly yeah you always have to reinterpret right i mean you have to interpret these ancient if there's something written 5000 years ago that we're still talking about there's some substance there's depth yeah. to the idea but we have to reinterpret it in the light of where we are today and i think we need a constant reminder and refresher right. about some of that ancient wisdom well what i find interesting about that is that you're trying to balance the science of happiness because you know you sort of in your books are sort of like let me show you the studies there's studies that support this and and then rods you know you're saying yes and there's this ancient tradition and so we've got this ancient tradition meets modern studies you know and then you've got to reconcile that <laughs> um you know i and i can give you uh, a specific example of something that um is along these lines of okay this has been done before and yet if you kind of poke a little deeper into it it seems like so shall i shall i tell you about that i mean okay so one of the sins that i talk about is this idea of dispassionate pursuit of passion uh actually habits i should say it's a dispassionate pursuit of passion and you know it's a sixth uh, habit and the and the it's an antidote to the sin of being obsessive about goals or indifferent about goals right um so if you look at the mba kind of crowd right the business world crowd i think that most of them are quote unquote guilty uh, of uh, being obsessive you know and i define obsession as um in lay parlance obsession is when you can't stop thinking about something and you know it becomes more than a mere achievement of the goal it becomes very personal a lot of the emotions and the egos associated with it and and so on and um what happens with obsessive pursuit uh, pursuers of passion is that they have very strong likes and dislikes they're very judgmental about things um and so before an event occurs they have strong preferences for some outcomes and uh, strong aversion toward other outcomes so i want to marry this person i don't want a world in which i'm not married to this person i want this job i want that promotion i want to live in the city and so on and so forth so there's a pre occurrence uh, preference before an outcome occurs they have a preference and then there's a post occurrence judgmentalism as they call it and so once the event has occurred let's say that they do get married to that person then they're very joyful and you know happy maybe even proud right hubristically especially when it comes to achievements um and when things don't happen according to how they wanted then they're miserable right so they go through a lot of ups and downs which of course all of us are familiar with right being in the business world i'm sure that at some point or the other we have experienced this roller coaster ride of life and the indifferent pursuers of passion are just you know and many of the indifferent pursuers of passion arrive at that conclusion that i'm not even going to you know pursue any goals or i'm going to check out because i've been through this roller coaster it does it's not worth it right um and so they lose the zest for life they lose the enthusiasm for life and so they kind of according to happy middle is uh, the dispassionate pursuit of passion where you do have preferences right and they are not rabid preferences where you know your personal ego is attached to the outcomes occurring otherwise you know it's all uh, not worth it kind of a thing um it's not feverish um it's a healthy preference for certain outcomes and an aversion for other outcomes so you do have likes and dislikes but only until the moment of truth right when the outcome is revealed once the outcome is revealed 
even if it's something that you do not like, you kind of throw your hands up in the air and say, how fascinating, right? Like the book, um, Art of Possibility says, uh, Benjamin Zander. Um, and uh, if good outcomes do occur, the ones that you wanted, um, you embrace them and you're grateful for them. So this is kind of like having pre-occurrence preferences, but not a whole lot of post-occurrence judgmentalism, right? And if you can marry the two, then you're a dispassionate pursuer of passion. I mean, I talk about this concept. People say, you know, that's the core message of the Gita. And it's been done before. Um, and uh, so I then dig a little bit deeper and what is the understanding of the Gita? And perhaps it is, in fact, entirely consistent with the Gita. Like I said, you know, I'm not uh, that well-versed in the scriptures uh, to, to really know. Uh, but a lot of the people's interpretation of the Gita is that don't have any desires. Okay? Don't have any desires. The fruits of your labor will come to you. So they kind of mouth or parrot these things. And when I ask them, what do you mean by desires? So they'll say that, yeah, you know, don't kind of aspire to have this high position or that salary and so on. So you're saying don't have those goals then. Then they'll be not so sure. And they'll say, yeah, kind of, yeah, not, don't, don't have these desires. And I say, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying do have those desires, do have these preference preferences. But once the outcome is revealed, be open to all the possibilities that life is throwing at you. And, and that's different from what you're saying, right? Yeah. So if you dig a little bit deeper, I, I'm not so sure that people, you know, I, I do, you know, first of all, you know, I do respect the scriptures and, you know, I, I, I do think that they have great pearls of wisdom, etc. But this idea of kind of, you know, just hand waving off something that is new. So you were saying, Raj, sometime back that we seem to be enamored by, you know, the colonial stuff and looking westward, etc., but by the same token, I think there's the opposite phenomenon in India a lot as well. To say that whatever the West is telling us is all bullshit and, and yeah. nothing new here. And we all yeah. had it. You know, the golden India. And of, late, of, late, of late, there's a lot of that. It's kind of the nationalistic, hubristic, you know, kind of uh, energy that's coming through. I think ultimately we want all of humanity's wisdom is our collective legacy. And we, are, we need to integrate the best of that. And we are learning, as you, I agree with you, we are still learning. It's not that the final word on anything was, was written 4,000 years ago. Just to acknowledge that there was deep thinking done on many things and we can build on that rather than saying we're creating you know, from scratch. You know, there, there were some things like that. And I think the idea of not being attached to a cherished outcome, having some intention and desire and, and direction, but not being attached to that cherished outcome. Because if you do that, then you end up engaging in wrong action. Mm. So focus on the right action and the right outcomes will, will emerge from that. Great. You want to go on to the next second one uh, about superiority? That was an important yes. point. Yeah, yeah. So chasing superiority, which again is not unfamiliar to a lot of us, right? Type A personalities to my MBA students. That's a big one. And uh, they often come back with the thing that, look, I mean, I do realize chasing superiority is not going to make me happy, but I do want to be successful, right? And so I'm just sacrificing my happiness at some level in order to be successful. And then I'll come back to being happy later, you know, when I retire, <laughs> kind of a thing. And uh, the, uh, the thing, the interesting thing is that actually chasing superiority, while it might motivate you in the short term, especially, um, and might make you more likely to be successful, in the long run, it's not a good strategy, even for success. Forget about happiness, even for success. You know, if you look at Adam Grant's book on give and take, for example, it's not the people who try to be better than other people and, and are takers and, you know, constantly comparing themselves to other people and wanting to do better than them that end up, quote unquote, winning, right? I mean, it's the people who are actually genuinely interested in the upliftment of everyone and who end up 
actually building these pools of goodwill around them that support them when they have a need or when they want to rise uh, that end up succeeding. And plus, I mean, you know, in any field, if you look at peak as a book or grit, in any field, the true determinant really, I mean, often unsung hero of success is, is grit and determination and putting your work in and, you know, being smart about it, not constantly comparing yourself to other people and wondering where you stack up, right? Especially on the extrinsic dimensions of, of fame and, and so on. And so that's the second sin and the habit is pursuing your flow, you know, pursuing your element, uh, as Sir, Sir Ken Robinson calls it. So what's the third? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the third is uh, this kind of desperation for love. And, you know, love is, of course, relationships are very, very important for us. And we can't be happy unless we have at least one really, really good intimate friend, right? I mean, lots of research showing that uh, sense of connection is super important for us, perhaps the most important one. And so uh, it's not a big surprise that a lot of us get a little bit desperate for it, um, especially, you know, for reasons that are totally out of our control, our childhood experiences have not been given enough what Harry Harlow called contact comfort, right? Being held and so on. Uh, then we develop a coping strategy whereby we kick and scream for that love and attention, or we become completely avoidant, right? And both of those are called insecure attachment styles. They're not very good for your happiness. And so you need to be in that sweet spot in the middle where you're not desperate for love, but at the same time, you're not rejecting love and attention. And so best way to get there, uh, I feel, is to actually to practice the habit, which is, you know, be an agent of kindness and compassion, um, be, you know, exercise your need to love rather than the need to be loved. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, again, there's a lot of research, especially in the last about 15 years, showing that we seem to have a very, and Raj, I mean, your book is all about, books, I should say, you know, the healing organization, for example, right? It's all about this idea that we seem to have a desire to be helpful and kind, and it's good business to be that way, right? And so, And that's the kind of pair, uh, the need to be loved versus the need to love and give. And then uh, I talk about, as the fourth uh, sin and habit, I talk about uh, this uh, control-seeking tendency um, that a lot of us have. And, you know, we do, a lot of research shows that we do need to have a sense of control. Uh, We need to perceive that we are in control, even if we are actually not. And uh, that's not just true for um, human beings, it's true for animals as well. And so it's perhaps, again, not so surprising that we are very, very keen on seeking that control and exercising that control. And a narrative that justifies that desire is that why, oh, why can't people see how wise and well-meaning I am? If only people obeyed me, not only would uh, I be happy, they'd be happy too, right? Um, But but the truth is that um, being overly controlling of outcomes and other people is actually a recipe for misery rather than for happiness for a variety of reasons, including that life you know, it's very uncertain, right? I mean, uh, it's definitely not going to obey your, your wishes and desires. And so if you tether your happiness to things working out exactly the way you want them to, uh, you know, you're probably uh, going to be unhappy, right? Quite likely. So the antidote to that is to recognize that while we desire control, there are two major domains or universes of control. One is the external domain, which is where we target or we focus. And we're thinking, most of us think that that is the only domain there is. There is an internal domain. You can control, or I think a better word is regulate your emotions. You can regulate your behaviors. You can regulate your thoughts. And once you have a sufficiently high level of what I call internal control, your desire for that external control will, will reduce down to healthy levels. Uh, you don't need that here. Yeah. And that's strongly related with emotional intelligence, right? The whole idea of Daniel Absolutely. Goldman and the whole idea that emotional intelligence, the higher your level of emotional intelligence, we're really talking about your own internal awareness, 
and your ability to control your reaction. And, um, and you know, control your reaction is really kind of a, a, a strong word. I, I, I like to think it's more, as you would say, Raj, you know, choose wise action. You know, it's like making a choice. Okay, I'm aware enough now to understand something's going on inside of me. Now I get to choose how I'm going to respond. And that idea of choice and then taking wise action, I think, is does go back to a lot of the ancient Buddhist and uh, certainly in the Buddhist tradition, which I'm more familiar with. It's certainly very central and core to that. So number five, what's number five? Number five is uh, this uh, idea of uh, default distrust. And there's a very interesting experiment done by uh, the Toronto Star newspaper of all uh, entities. Uh, in the early 2000s, where they dropped these, it's called the wallet drop experiment, where they, they dropped these wallets around the city of Toronto, I think 20 wallets with about $200 in each. So not an insignificant amount, right? Um, and they had a uh, an ID card inside. So if somebody found the wallet, they could have returned it. Um, and um, they dropped them in you know various places, like in front of a library, in a park, on the subway, and so on and so forth. And the question was, how many of these wallets would in fact get returned? And the interesting thing was, uh, while they waited for the wallets to get returned, um, they ran a survey in which they asked the citizens of Toronto, how many of these wallets do you think will get returned? And um, they said that, uh, you know, on average, they said 23%, right? So 4.6 wallets out of the 20 would get returned, when in fact, 80%, 16 of those wallets were returned with all the money intact in them, okay? So there's a big discrepancy between people's uh, perceived levels of trustworthiness of their fellow citizens and the actual levels of trustworthiness of these of these people. And as uh, John Halliwell, who I interviewed uh, for this course, my online course, uh, told me, uh, he was, um, you know, he's, he's very involved in these kinds of uh, research uh, projects. He told me that people are unnecessarily leaving a lot of happiness on the table by being overly cynical of their own fellow human beings, because the more cynical you are, in ways that we don't even realize, perhaps, it starts affecting our happiness. It makes us more vigilant, more untrusting of other people. And so we're constantly watching our back. We're not even able to sleep well. Okay. Um, and uh, the, there's a book called Smart Trust, which talks about the speed of doing business. The speed of doing business um, uh, decreases. That is, it takes longer if you tr- distrust other people because you have to now get lawyers involved and the cost of doing business increases. So it's all bad. You know, so if you look at the um, happiness of countries, one of the highest, biggest determinants of the happiness of countries is the level of distrust that we have for our fellow citizens, right? Um, so the more you, you agree with the statement that on average, I can trust the people with whom I have routine interactions, the happier the country is. Okay, so... so uh, uh, Raj, growing up in India, I don't know if you were a PG Woodhouse buff. Yes, yes, in fact, yes. You all were, right? And PG Woodhouse was one of the most trusting souls Mm-hmm. And there was one famous story about him. He used to sit in his study and write his books. And of course, in those days, they wrote tons of letters, right? And he would put the letters in the envelope, put the stamp, he'd open the window and throw it out. Really? That's all. He <laughs> never went down to the mailbox. He just threw out all his letters from the window if it wasn't raining, you know. <laughs> and all his letters made it to their destination because people would pick it up and put it in the mailbox, you know. Wow. So that just shows trust is not something you have to earn. Trust is something that's a quality that I have. I'm trusting. Mm-hmm. Therefore, by default now, sometimes that will you'll get burned. But I think what you're saying is net-net, that's a much better way to be. Absolutely. Yeah, so that is what I, I, the antidote is smart trust. It is not to be trusting all the time, indiscriminately trusting all the time, but 
trusting people enough that you maximize your happiness while minimizing the mm-hmm. pain of being distrusted, right? Or pain of uh, your trust being violated. So I have some strategies for that. I can talk about that, but you know, um, I can move on to talk about the sixth, which I already talked about earlier, right? That yeah. that whole thing about dispassionate pursuit of passion as being right. the habit, etc. And then the final one is the mind addiction, which um, you know also I talked a little bit about earlier. And this is particularly true for the smart and the successful people, right? They have, uh, you know, it's almost a definition of smartness is that you're able to think well, right? Mm-hmm. You're able to critically analyze something, and once you're praised for it, I think you get that, you know. Uh, uh, feedback that uh, positive stroke uh, the in the words of um, the operant uh, conditioning theorist the behaviorist right you, you get these positive rewards uh, and you know great um, uh, a plaque at the end of the year or something like that and so you end up believing that thinking about uh, a problem is is a better way to arrive at a solution than following your gut or your instinct or your emotions and what the research says is that while that's generally true, and there's lots of contexts in which it's true, right? I mean, if you want to kind of invest in the best retirement plan, for example, right? You do want to kind of think through it, right? Or you want to um, buy a house as an investment, you want to kind of think through that. And maybe if you want to lose a certain amount of weight, you want to think about, okay, what's my regimen going to be and so on. But there are lots of other goals for which that approach is not very suitable. Uh, so there's a study done where they ask people to kind of think through why it is that they want to choose a particular poster. So the participants in the study were given various posters to choose from. Um, and one group was asked to kind of be very deliberative about it. And, you know, they were also told that you're going to have to explain to us why you chose this poster. And the other group was just told, choose the poster that you instinctively like, right? And what turned out is that the satisfaction with the poster over the next six months, and they actually let these, let these participants take the poster home, was much higher in the group in which people chose the posters instinctively. So if you look at decisions in which are are uh, the benefit that we're looking for is an emotional one, is a hedonic one, and there are many like buying a home as opposed to an investment property, getting married to somebody. You know, honestly, mm-hmm. I mean that's more of a decision that is based off of okay, what is what are the sort of emotional benefit that I'm going to get out of this? This is not a kind of a decision in which you want to open an Excel spreadsheet and list people's attributes and you know uh, do a kind of a utility calculation, right? It's more of a decision of the heart. When it comes to those kinds of decisions, it's much better not to overthink. It's much better to uh, rely on the information that you're getting from your instincts and emotions. And so that is the kind of, and, and the path to that is actually mindfulness. Mm. And if you practice mindfulness, you know, you actually get in touch with, okay, is this a decision in which I'm seeking utilitarian goals or hedonic goals? You have a little more awareness of that. And then you also have awareness of what are my emotions telling me, right? I mean, because a lot of us, suffer from not even having access to our emotions because we have shut that part out in the quest for rationality and for intelligence, right? So, so that's in, in a nutshell, that, that particular pairing. So Raj, uh, you and I share the, uh, the sort of career trajectory in a way we got our PhDs in marketing. What, do you think there's anything in, in that uh, choice that then leads us into this path? I don't know if I'm overgeneralizing on a small sample, but this search for meaning and uh, deeper fulfillment uh, you know what how do you connect that back to uh, to uh, to your core career choice of marketing that's a great uh, question uh, Raj you know I um, went into marketing because you know from Bitspilani engineering background I went to the MBA school and I think a natural choice might have been in finance because you know quant 
kind of a thing. But I was really, really attracted to the psychological side of things. And that's how I went into marketing. I didn't have an idea that I was going to apply for a PhD. But then I wanted to get out of India. It wasn't as if I wanted to get a PhD. Honestly, you know, it was more to kind of just, uh, like, you know. So our stories coincide up to that point. Same engineering, <laughs> MBA. How do I get to the US? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Then I came here and I, I wanted to do something. And I could have chosen management, but I chose marketing for some reason. Uh, because I, I know why, because one of my friends, he had uh, gone the year earlier and he was in marketing and so he could guide me. And so, you know, because I needed that guidance at that point. Um, so I ended up there. And then after that, you know, it's a very interesting point you bring up, uh, Raj. A lot of marketing folks are in the search of meaning or, you know, teaching happiness courses now, you know, including, uh, you mentioned Sri Kumar Rao, but Jennifer Acker at mm-hmm. uh, Stanford, she does a lot of work on happiness. Uh, Michael Norton at Harvard, a lot of, you know, he's got this book called Happy Money with Elizabeth Dunn, great book, by the way. Um, if you look at uh, some other people, you know, lots of people involved in happiness now uh, of all things in the, and from the marketing department. I think, Raj, this might have to do with this idea that, um, and I'm just, this is a hypothesis, right, that uh, we are interested in how to make decisions, right, the best decisions. And uh, we take the approach of, you know, the economist's kind of recipe that, you know, let's assume that people are interested in maximizing utility, whatever that means. And I think that there's a little bit of discomfort with that idea that, you know, we're just maximizing utility. I think that we recognize that ultimately what people want are positive emotions and, you know, and thinking that they're leading a life of meaning and fulfillment. So this kind of emotional meaning side of things is why we do the things that we do. And so, and because we are so much into kind of analyzing people's consumers' decisions and why they're doing this or that and so on, I think for us, uh, what ultimately makes sense, but seems like an elephant in the room that no one's addressing is that, well, ultimately what people want is happiness or fulfillment and meaning. So why aren't we kind of tackling that directly and talking Mm -hmm. about utility and decision-making and what's the optimal decision-making without bringing that into the picture, because that's what's going on. Mm -hmm. you know, maybe that's what is going on. Yeah, and I think ultimately the role of marketers is supposed to be to improve the lives of customers, right? To bring right. more fulfillment and uh, happiness to them. And to a large extent, uh, marketing as usual, the practice doesn't do that. Right. It kind of ends up using and tricking people, you know? And I think there's, there's a kind of loss of innocence, I think, there. And I think that may then channel some of that more idealistic energy into these kinds of things. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Uh, Great. So, I mean, you've laid out pretty clearly, you know, the seven sins and the seven habits uh, for happiness. But then you also have the whole, whole thing about, you know, a new MBA. So, say a little bit about the, the acronym MBA and, and how you came up with that and why it's important. Yeah. So, um, the seven sins and habits offers one take on what it takes to lead a life of happiness. And, uh, you know, it involves mitigating those sins and um, pursuing those habits or nurturing those habits. But you could kind of approach it in another way and uh, think about, okay, if you were to abstract to one level higher from those seven sins and habits, uh, what does the research say about what it takes to be happy and why we are not as happy as we could or should be? And if you do take that uh, approach, then you kind of end up with the conclusion that um, the the big goals that we tend to uh, pursue in our lives uh, that have a big bearing on our happiness or unhappiness uh, could be characterized as, you know, MBA goals. Okay. And obviously I'm kind of 
playing a little bit of a trick with words here because I'm from the business school and you know the book is addressed to people who are smart and successful in the business world mostly etc mm-hmm. so it's an acronym that most people are familiar with and they think you know masters of business administration right that's the first thing that comes to the mind when they think of mba but i'm not talking about getting an mba <laughs> um they do choose to get an mba i would very much suggest that they come to the macom school of business but that's not not what i'm talking about i'm talking about three very important goals and those three goals are the goals of mastery uh, the goal to be competent to be you know seen as being very skilled at doing one thing or the other uh, the goal of belonging the goal of having a sense of connection at least one really intimate uh, connection with somebody or the other and the goal of autonomy the goal of being uh, having the ability to uh, be the author of your own decisions right rather than a, than a puppet in somebody else's hands so those are the three big goals that seem to be super important if you want to be happy okay and there are a couple of other things that are important too like you have your basic needs fulfilled i think it's super important otherwise you don't even have the luxury of thinking about happiness right you're worried about where your next meal is going to come from but let's assume that's taken care of for the target yeah. audience that i'm talking yeah. to right it's smart and successful and and you can think of a, a a mindset that's also important right i mean just the achievement of mastery and belonging and autonomy may not do it you also might need a attitude right a power yeah. and kind of seeing the glass half full kind of an attitude which we can also talk about but these three things yeah. seem super important um you know in some sense i know there's one school of thought that says the more you pursue happiness the less likely you are to have it <laughs> because you're pursuing it and and i'm wondering how do you relate to 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 that that idea that if you pursue happiness and it becomes your goal <laughs> um that that maybe that that's not what that's that's not how you get happy <laughs> right i i think it's a great point and i think uh, to some extent raj kind of already alluded to this idea and this is why i'm careful to say that pursuit of happiness is not it right i mean that's not the mm-hmm. goal the goal is the prioritization of happiness um so think about it right ultimately we want to lead a life of happiness and fulfillment okay and a life of meaning you know this set of things right that's what we want in our life and i don't think too many people would disagree with it Okay so given that that's very very important you have one of two approaches left right one approach is to directly pursue it and chase it and constantly monitor how happy and how meaningful your life is which some research is showing is not very good for happiness right it actually lowers your happiness if you do that so but that doesn't mean that you then say okay fine you know i don't even want to think about it right uh, i'm just going to uh, deprioritize happiness and you know it's not the most important thing maybe then i'll get there okay that doesn't seem to work either because you know you you end up getting in your life what you 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 um prioritize in your life right so you do need to prioritize which i think is a happy middle ground actually where you're not constantly monitoring and chasing happiness but at the same time you're recognizing this is an important thing for me and so let me learn about what the research has to say or for that matter what religion has to say what are your approaches right um and i'm going to do the things that they recommend and then once in a while i'll check in to see whether it's making a positive difference or not but i'm not going to be obsessive about it yeah what so I, what i what i heard you just say was in essence that if you do some of these other things the happiness comes so you exactly. focus on prioritizing these other things you do those and then you see that the result of that is exactly. that you're happier over time right exactly So Raj if people want to know more about the work that you're doing on happiness what's the best place for them to get more information 
um, beyond your book and where you are now and the work you're doing now on this? Yeah, so one good place is my website. And the website is, uh, the URL to that is uh, www.happysmarts.com. Happy and smarts together is one word. Um, there I have a bunch of you know resources, my uh, site today articles, links to them, my book, my courses, and so on and so forth. So that's one thing that I, actually maybe that's the only thing that I would recommend. I do have another website which is for my newest course on organizational happiness. And that website is a heroicjourney.com. A, then heroic, and then journey, all one word, .com. So last comment on happiness. If you want to leave one thought with our listeners about happiness and the quote-unquote pursuit of happiness, what would be your final thought? Um. Well, that's a big question. So I, I, maybe I'd leave people with this thought, right? Um, try to at least kind of get to a definition of what happiness means to you. Um, for me, my definition is um, being lighthearted, but not at the cost of rationality or, um, or compassion. Mm. Um, and so... You know, I want to do important things. I want to do serious things, but I do not want to take myself seriously. So I, I think that clarity on what it is that you're seeking out of your life, because happiness is so broad and abstract that, you know, you can kind of, um, you can uh, devalue happiness or deprioritize it just because you don't really know at a concrete level what it means to you. So I think that the more you can associate what you mean by the term happiness with a specific emotion, the specific state, the clearer you are on what it is that you're seeking. And then it becomes a little bit easier to kind of figure out, okay, you know, given that that's what I want, okay, I want to do these things and I don't want to do those things and so on. So for example, a lot of the students in my class um, define it in terms of uh, love and relationships. Mm -hmm. And that gives them a lot of clarity on life decisions. You know, if they get yeah. a new job or a career uh, prospect, you know, whether to take it or not. It might be yeah. offering a lot of money, but it might actually be coming at a huge cost to their family and they don't want to do it. Yeah, so yeah. It, it sort of goes to that basic question, what matters most? Yeah, and exactly. it's somehow, you know, maybe that's part of the old ancient wisdom is if you <laughs> made modern, you know, if you pursue what matters most, you will discover that on the other side of that, it probably lies some form of happiness for you. But you've got to ask that question in a real deep and meaningful way. Absolutely. Well, Raj, Rajiz, thank you so much for the time today and this deeper exploration of happiness and what leads to it and why marketing professors think, it, <laughs> think it's an important topic. So thank you so much, Raj. Thank you, Raj. It's a wonderful book to all our listeners. Uh, strongly recommended. Very, very practical, very grounded. And Raj also, by the way, has a column in psychology today. Right, and so it's a really wonderful. I've read a few of those as well. So again, thank you for being here and addressing this important subject with us. Thank you, Raj. Thank you, uh, Timothy. Uh, it's my pleasure. It's my honor to be invited. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners and whatever channel you're listening to this podcast on, there's a button somewhere there that says subscribe. So feel free to do that. And if you'd like to go over to Apple Podcast and leave us a rating and a comment, please feel free to do that. Or go directly to theconsciouscapitalists.com where we have a little box at the bottom that uh, will send a message to Raj and I and we will um, 
pay attention to all those notes that we get from you. So thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you again next week. And a last thank you to Carla Viegas, our producer, who makes sure that this gets out every week. Carla, thank you for all the hard work you do to make this work. Thanks, everybody. See you next week.